0: Hi, thanks for joining us again. We're taking our Bibles and going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11 in our study of the wilderness wanderings, going through the book of Numbers, and we're going to look today going from grumble to humble and uh, really battling with our attitudes and the exchange that needs to happen in our attitudes to be more like God would desire us to be. Have you ever taken time to notice the little things in life? You know, sometimes we, we get so focused on the big that we, we miss some of the small. And sometimes that, that happens even with our attitudes, with our sin life, and our, our sin nature, and the struggles that we have. And I think grumbling, it never really gets the attention that, that it deserves. It is a problem. You know, I don't think anybody's really ever said, I need to go to a counselor and say, help me, I'm addicted to grumbling. Or is there a 12-step program? Or where is the Grumblers Anonymous, you know, program that, that's available for me? we just sort of look and we're saying, "Eh, it's not that big of a deal. But as we started to look last week, grumbling is is an issue. And it is a struggle and it is a sin. And as we look, I, I don't think most of us could honestly say we haven't grumbled about politicians or about our job or about politicians or about our home or about politics or about our mechanic or about our spouse or about politicians. You get the point, I... Right now, it's really easy in the situation, in the life we face, to find ourselves grumbling. And we have to take a step back and say, wait, when I grumble, what is it doing? I think at times we feel like it's our God-given right. We, we will say, you know, perhaps we just, you know, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. It's not so bad. It's my God-given right to be able to grumble. And we have to look and say, wait, when I grumble, as we talked last time, when I complain, I often will often deify the past. I will disparage the present and I become discontented about the future. When I complain, I am denying God's providence over me. When I complain, I can and and usually do spread the spirit of complaint among God's people. When I complain, I undervalue the richness of God's provisions for me. And I need to look and say, wait, complaining is wrong. God does not desire me to complain. And we see that in this passage, that God is going to deal with complaining. Now, as we talked last time, in the first part of chapter 11, we saw that the people, they were outside of God's camp initially complaining. And then the complainers, they found themselves in camp influencing the Israelites. And they went to the point where Moses looks and says, this is what you're complaining about. You're complaining about the manna the bread of heaven from the hand of God, God's practical daily provisions for you, and they were complaining about it. But that complaining spirit, it it ended up influencing even Moses. By the time we got to verses 11 through 15, we saw that Moses had been drastically influenced by the complaining, the grumbling, the murmuring of the children of Israel. And we, we talked last time, but I didn't talk about this. In verses 11 through 15, it's really interesting that Moses refers to himself no fewer than 20 times talking about, I am not, I am not, this is me. He, he just keeps going back to himself and back to himself. And Moses was focused not so much on the concern for the people and the public concern, but now he had shifted and said, this is me. This is my personal concern. These are struggles that I'm having, God. This is what I'm not pleased with. Just get to the point. Remember where we left Moses? We left Moses really battling. And as we go through this passage, as you look through Numbers 11, notice the contrast that happened. There there is confidence in God at the end of chapter 10, and yet there's complaining. Those two should not go together. They're opposites. And yet we find ourselves, by the end, back to confidence in God. You'll see that there is a public nature in this passage, and then there's that personal. We're going to see Israel, then we're back into Moses personally, and then we're going to go back out and to look at Israel as a whole. You're going to see both the leadership and the laity. You're going to see that this is an issue for the the leaders. This is an issue for the common person. This is, this is a struggle. But yet you would think that, oh, one or the, two, one or the other would not battle with this. But we, we don't see that. You're going to see a contrast. There's going to be grace and there's going to be justice. You're going to see both of those in this passage. And the with the thing with contrast is it helps you to see more clearly. And when we understand God's grace, we understand His justice. And when we understand God's justice more clearly, we understand more clearly God's grace. And you see God's graciously going to answer questions, yet God is justly going to meet out uh, consequences upon the people who grumble and complain. It was right. When you get down to it, it was right for Moses to be infuriated, to be frustrated by the people's unbelief. For That's really what's at the root of complaining. It's unbelief. The belief that God is not going to, is good, that God is not sovereign, that God is not in control. It's an unbelief in God's goodness towards you. And yet he went too far. Moses got to the point where he's looking at himself only, looking at the people's problems, and he began to forget about God and God's ability. And we'll see that fleshed out in the passage here. That he's going to diminish the strength, the power, the authority of God. So Moses, we left off with him getting to the point where he's begging God to just kill him. Now we've come to the point where that phrase, just kill me just shoot me, just kill me, just be done with it. That becomes almost like this trivial joking phrase. But think about it in Moses' perspective. He is not joking. He is looking at God and saying, I am not designed to carry this enormous burden alone. That's where he ends up in verse 11 through 15. What does it take for someone to to actually stand before the sovereign of the universe? To stand before the giver of life and death. To actually say, just kill me. He was. He was in a dark spot. He was battling. He was struggling. He was discouraged. He was depressed. And yet God is going to look and God is going to answer him. But before we go further, I want you to think about Moses. Moses is the mediator, the intercessor for the children of Israel. What happens if God God grants that request and kills Moses? If he's gone, who's going to be their go-between? Sure, God will bring somebody else in, but at this moment, all they know is Moses. That would be a transition. Within a transition, it would be a tragic struggle for the people. Our mediator would be gone. Even if a godly leader, uh, even a godly leader like Moses gets angry, he gets upset with God and grumbles. It requires God's mercy and grace. And if Moses required God's mercy and grace, which he did, and Moses battles with sin, then the people, they needed somebody better than Moses to be their intercessor. We needed somebody better than Moses to be our intercessor. And the the Bible talks about that we needed a better mediator, someone who will not only intercede for us consistently, but someone who will bear the wrath of God in our place, someone who can bear the burden of leadership on his own, without getting weary and frustrated of us. We needed a better mediator than Moses. We needed a better intercessor than any human could ever provide outside of Jesus Christ. We needed a better than Moses. And that's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, reminds the Jewish believers and reminds the Jews that there was a better than Moses. Mo, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 8, that the better than Moses was Jesus Christ. That he was able to stand as a mediator. There is one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. We see that he is able to to be the one who is the go-between. He is a better intercessor than Moses could have ever been. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. He's interceding on our behalf. And when he asks his disciples to pray, they're weary, they're tired. He could become very exasperated and very frustrated with the people around him because they weren't doing what he was asking. And yet, what does Jesus continually go back to do? He goes back and he intercedes on behalf of the disciples. He's praying for them because he knows Satan is going to attack. He knows that they're going to be struggling. He knows that there's going to be difficulties. And yet, Christ is the better mediator. Christ is the better intercessor than Moses. And I'm so thankful that we have him to put our faith and trust in, not a human being, just a a normal man that we would have to trust in to be our mediator. We have the greatest intercessor, the greatest mediator that could ever be. That is Jesus Christ. Now, back to back to the passage here. God is going to graciously answer Moses. He's going to look, and, and God understands that Moses is discouraged and overwhelmed. We know that people in the Bible, the uh, the Psalms and the Psalms, there are a number of what are called complaint psalms. There's Job. They do complain, but they complain where they complain to God. That little proposition is important. They're complaining to God. God could have killed him, but that would have, that would have been very uh, ungracious to the Israelites at the time. He could have told them, hey, just pick yourself up, quit your whining. And he could have just seemed indifferent to, to Moses. And yet God graciously hears him. He hears Moses' plea for help, and he's going to graciously answer. And yet in that answer, there's going to be some natural consequences for Moses, which we'll see, we'll see in a moment here. So God, what is God's gracious answer to Moses? Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, the Lord says to Moses, gather me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with you and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee and I will put it on them and they shall bear the burden of thy people with you, that you should not bear it thyself alone. God knew exactly the struggle that Moses was facing, and God directly answers, chooses at this point to directly answer Moses' Moses's plea. God doesn't always answer. We know sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. Sometimes his answer is you're going to wait a little bit. But in this case, God answers Moses directly with, okay, I'm going to give you what you're, what you're asking for. Notice that he says that they may stand there with you at the end of verse uh, 16. He says, this is what their purpose is going to be, that you're going to be a united team, that you're going to be a group of people ministering and working together. He looks at them and he says, I'm going to take the spirit that is upon you and place it upon them. Why does he do that? Verse 17, that you may not have to, that they can bear the burden with you so you don't have to bear it alone. At first, um, back to that for a second. When, when we look at the Spirit, that is God placing the Holy Spirit, and he's gonna, we'll talk about that in a little bit here, but God is gonna place the Holy Spirit upon them in a unique fashion, in a unique way that is going to authenticate these 70 men that they are standing, that they are partnering in ministry with Moses, It's going to give them authority for the people to understand these people have leadership as well. Now, verses 18 through 20, God gives a gracious answer in 16 and 17 to Moses, but he's going to give a furious answer to the people. In 18 through 20. And at first glance, uh, one of the commentaries that I I read, it's the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, or NICOT for short. Uh, Really technical, but a, a good commentary. They said, at first glance, one might believe that God is simply granting the demand because the people have rebelled and rejected God's leadership. He capitulates and gives them what they desire. God just caves in and says, here you go. Some people believe that. They don't hold to that in that commentary. But they say that's one of the arguments that people say. It just seems like God's just going to give them what they want. So if we complain long enough and hard enough, God's just got to give it to us. That's that's not what happens here. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, sanctify yourself or make yourself holy against tomorrow for tomorrow. Because tomorrow you're going to eat flesh. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, who shall give us the flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and you shall eat it. That, that it's not just like, okay, hey, you're going to get to eat. The you shall eat is the idea of you will be forced to eat. You're not going to have any, you're going to eat this meat that God is going to provide you. And so they're going to do it, not just for a day. Verse 18 says, not just for two days, not just for a month or a, a couple weeks. You're going to do this for an entire month. And God is furious. Look at, look at what he says, verse 18 and 19, or verse 9, 20, excuse me but even a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and it be loathsome unto you. God looks and he says, this is going to be loathsome. That word loathsome is really interesting. It has the idea of when it's translated, it was translated from Hebrew into a Greek Bible called the Septuagint. They use the word cholera or nausea, that it just, it ruminates and it's not sitting good. You're wanting to get to the point where you feel like you're going to vomit. In fact, verse 20 also says that it's going to come out of your nostrils. And as we look at next time, when we look at the the plague and what happens, many commentators actually believe that the idea here is that there's some sort of food poisoning that occurs with the quail because of God's anger and God's wrath toward the people. And it actually causes them to vomit for it to be coming out of their noses And it's just that that extreme sickness that is caused because of their their attitude towards God. So why the punishment? This isn't a capitulation by God. I like what Matthew Henry said. Matthew Henry said, the Lord sent the quail first so that none could say God simply judged the people because he couldn't provide the people with quail, with meat. Matthew Henry says, God gave it first so no one could look and say, oh, God couldn't do that. God says, I could do it. I can do it, here you go. But there's judgment because of your attitude, because of your complaining spirit. Ultimately, your rebellion against God and against his leadership and his authority. Because look at what what verse 20 says. Verse 20 says, because that you have despised or rejected the Lord, which is among you, which is at your center, is the word that's used there, among you that he is in the midst, that he is present, that he is not only present, but he is providing. We've been talking about those, the presence, the provisions of God, his protection, that he was there. Why is he in the midst? He's there to lead them to the land of promise. He's there to provide for their daily needs. They complained about the providential leading of God. They say, why came, they wept before him saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? In other words, why'd you lead us here, God? And there is this rebellious heart attitude toward God himself. It wasn't just simply because, man, we just would like to try something a little bit different than manna. It was because when it got down to the core heart attitude of these individuals, it was rebellion against God, rejection against his leadership, and they were were pushing back against the one who was trying to lead them to something far greater. But why the difference response? At least that's a question I wanted to ask. I don't know if you're asking why Moses complained. Why why does he get what seems like a blessing? And why do the children of Israel, why are they going to get a plague? Well, when we look at Moses, Moses had taken his complaint to the Lord, whereas the people of God The ones in the camp, they had only complained about the Lord to other people, to themselves. They weren't going to God and saying, God, this is what we long for. God, this is what we see. God, this is the struggles we have. We see that with the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper, the psalmist says. He's complaining to the Lord. He's talking to the Lord and saying, I don't get this, God. Job, the same thing. He's going to talk to God. He's going to bring his complaints before the Lord. Moses went privately to the Lord. He pours out his heart transparently to God. Have you ever found yourself praying and you're like, God, I'm going to, you're going to ask for all these different things and you're going to talk about, yeah, God, I really struggle with, you know, complaining, but it's really not as big of a deal. Moses is just going to open up his heart to God. God knows what's in our heart. God knows where we're at. And so we need to be transparent in our prayers to God. God knows our struggles, God knows our sins. We need to openly be transparent with God in our prayers. But when you are overwhelmed and discouraged, I think a great principle from Moses here is take your complaint to the Lord in prayer rather than complaining about the Lord to yourself and others. There's a lot going on. A lot of things in life I don't like. No doubt. Decisions again this week. Changing rulings and overturning rule, I I don't like it. But I have to go to God with that. I have to really battle with the struggles that I have in different areas of life. But I need to take my request to God first and foremost. Looking to say, God, here are my struggles. Here are my battles. Here are my sinful tendencies. You know them. I need your help. Rather than just gossiping. Rather than just going around. But looking and saying, God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm discouraged. I'm coming to you. That's what Moses did. But here's here's the interesting part. God looks at Moses and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide you people so that you're not standing alone. I'm going to give the people meat. And look at Moses' unbelievable question. Verse 21 he says, Moses says, the people among whom I am, we'll come back to that phrase, it's really important, among whom I am, there's 6,000 footmen, and they, and thou hast, I will give them flesh, Said you said I'm going to give them flesh, and they shall eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice, or shall all the flesh of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? How are you going to do this, God? How am I going to provide meat for all these people for this month? How is this going to happen? Do I need to kill all the flocks? What, what's going on, the herds? Moses says, at the beginning of verse 20, he says, among whom I am. He's using almost the exact same word. He just tweaks it a little bit as what we find down in verse 20, where it says, the Lord who is among you who is in your midst, who is at the center. Moses is looking and saying, I am at the center of these people. I am here. How am I going to provide? How are you going to do this? How are we going to do this, God? Because I don't see it happening. Moses' perspective was still on himself in the center, in the midst of all these people, even after God had said, this is what's going to happen. But before we get too harsh on Moses, have you ever found yourself in that same situation where you know what God says and yet you still doubt? You know what God is going to do, and yet you're still wondering, how's he going to do this? I don't know if he can, I don't think he can. I don't don't believe that that's an uncommon thought in Christianity. That we know what God says he's going to do. We know that God's going to come. I don't know if he's really going to come again. We do that. We struggle with it. Moses is battling with who is at the center. God is at the center. Moses is looking and saying, I'm here in the center of all these people. How are we going to provide for all of them? He sees only his condition. The Lord then is going to stop him. It's almost like the same thing that happens with Job. Remember, Job is going to ask these questions and he's going to have his struggles and pour it out before the Lord. And the Lord is just going to stop him and ask him a barrage of questions. And it it stops Job in his tracks. Well, the same thing is going to happen here with Moses, except the Lord's going to use one question, and he's going to use a statement to stop him. He says in verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, is the Lord's hand waxed short? That's what our King James says. Uh, A better translation or an updated understanding of the word is that is the Lord's hand cut short? Now remember, the hand of the Lord was a symbol of his strength. Are you saying that God's not strong enough, Moses, to provide? Are you saying I don't have the ability? The, the The one who parted the Red Sea, the one who caused all these frogs to come up, the lights to show up, all the plagues. The, the, do you think the hand of the Lord has all of a sudden been cut short that He can't provide meat for all these people? Is that what you're saying, Moses? Is that your battle? You will see. Verse twenty three. Super important. To underline this this section because we're going to come back to it and. The New Testament comes back to it, and we, we know this. Verse 23, thou shalt see now whether the, my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Moses, you're about to see whether my word is true or whether I'm a fraud. And you know the answer, Moses, don't you? You know that my word is good. You just, your, your theology is not matching up with your practical beliefs, your faith right now. You know what you're supposed to say. You know what you believe, and yet you're battling with it. We're doing the same thing. We know that God is in control, and yet we look around and go, God, are you in control? I don't, I don't, can this really be happening? Our world seems to be falling apart, but yet you're in control. We, we battle with some of the same exact things, but we know and Moses, you're going to know that my word is true. You're going to see it. But it's really important to note in this passage, all of Numbers 11, how much it focuses on words and speaking. Have you, have you thought about it in this? I mean, you, you see the, all the complaining. It starts off the people complaining. The, those are negative words. But when you get down, verse 16, the Lord said, verse 17, he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to talk with you. He says, I've heard the weeping, verse 18, of the people. He says, I've, I've been hearing the word of the Lord. Now you get to verse, um, 23, that you're gonna see the word shall come to pass. Verse 24, the words of the Lord. Verse 25, that the God is gonna come down and he's gonna speak. Then these individuals are gonna prophesy. You're gonna see this constant dynamic through the passage about words and about speaking. And whose words do we trust? Whose words do we listen to? What words are we speaking? God is very focused in on something that we often see as insignificant, our words, but we need to see as very significant. Not only our words, but the word of the Lord. God's word is true, it is valid, it is infallible, and we need to follow the word of God. So Moses, at the end of verse 23... He's at a crossroads. In 23 to 24, there's going to be a change. There's going to be, uh, hey, what's Moses going to do? How's he going to respond? We know he's doubting. We know that he has complained. Will he continue to wallow in fear and self-pity? Talking about, oh, my world is falling in on me. I'm so struggling. Or will he humbly submit to God's word, trusting that God's word will come to pass? Will he demonstrate total dependence upon God by uh, trusting God and obeying his word? What's he going to do? And we move at this point, we transition. Again, here's the contrast. We're gonna, the, the, the movie has panned into Moses and now it's gonna pan back out into public. We're gonna see a transition. And as we move back into the public forum in verse 24, what is Moses going to do? He's had his heart pouring out to God. He has had his, his wrestling match with God saying, I'm really battling, I'm really struggling. Now what's he going to do? How is he going to practically live? He's wrestled, he's doubted, he's struggled. And we get to verse 24 and we see that there is going to be these equipping of partners because that's what God said he was going to do. His word is sure. And look what look what it says. Moses is going to return to his former self. Old Moses is back. The one that we've talked about. The one who takes the word of God and obeys it. The one who faithfully communicates God's word. Look what he does in verse 24. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, gathered the 70 elders of the people, set them round about the tabernacle. So he does what God has told him to do and he communicates to the people that this is what God is going to do. And God responds to it. God is going to then provide Moses with his answer. He's going to take his spirit. Verse 25, it says, the Lord came down in a cloud, spoke unto him and took the spirit that was upon him and gave it to the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. So we have the Lord equipping these men by the Holy Spirit to lead with Moses, to be in a position to be considered prophets, to be ones who the people could look to for authority, for direction, for answers, for intercession. These men were going to help Moses to carry the burden so that he did not have to do it alone. They prophesied, it says, or literally they acted like a prophet. They acted in a way that credited them before the people as a prophet. What that was, the text doesn't tell us. What happened, we don't exactly know, but we know this, that the people recognized these individuals as being uniquely gifted by God, being placed in a position of leadership and that God's stamp of approval was placed upon them. Now, at the end of that verse, in verse 25, you're gonna see that there's, there's a phrase in the King James that says, and they, do not, did, they did not cease. In verse 25 there, it's a, it's a rough translation uh, because if they did not cease prophesying, that meant that for the rest of their life, the Holy Spirit was always upon them. We know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. He wasn't consistently upon an individual, but the Spirit of God would come to, for certain tasks, for certain abilities, and we have that. But more importantly, when we look at the Hebrew, when we, the word literally means they did not add and and what the translation when we take that that Hebrew word it means that they did not continue to do so so th- did they cease or did they not continue what what it was it when we look at the when we look at the text when we look at the evidence when we look at all that's happening uh it seems to point that this was a time this was on one occasion only but it was sufficient enough for the people to know that God had put his divine seal of approval upon these leaders And so they didn't continue to um, prophesy in the sense of acting, but they had this moment where God says, these men are my men for this position. And God places his authority and is gifting upon them for the leadership in order to do what? To help Moses and ultimately to help the people. That was a gracious gift of God, not only to Moses, but to the people. But with that, we look at, an issue that comes up. Something happens. Look at it as the text goes on. Verse 26. It says, But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. So these two men, for some reason, they weren't at the tabernacle. They were part of the 70, but they weren't at the tabernacle. They were still in the camp. We don't know why, but we know they're not condemned for it. They're not condemned for not being present. In fact, God still blesses them, still puts the Spirit of God upon them, and they begin to prophesy. Verse 26, they prophesied in the camp. And it caused some tension. But it was interesting because this is really huge. It showed that the work of the Spirit could bypass Moses altogether. It, it, it didn't have to just happen there with Moses. And God could do it anywhere. He could pour out His Spirit on anyone whenever he wanted, wherever he wanted. This was radical because everything in the camp at this point, everything had been funneled through Moses. Moses was present for everything. And now all of a sudden Moses is at the tabernacle. There's two people out in the camp and what's happening? God's pouring out his spirit on them. Not through and not with Moses. There's other individuals who it's happening with. And it causes concern. It, Joshua is going to, to really struggle with this. And it's the first time in Numbers we're introduced to Joshua. He's already been introduced back in Exodus. But this is the first time we, in the book of Numbers, really are introduced. His name has been mentioned, but we really get into Joshua's heart, his heartbeat, his loyalty to Moses. He says, he's basically looking and saying, if the Spirit could descend on anyone, anywhere, then Moses' unique role is the prophetic mediator. As the leader of Israel, it could be compromised. And honestly, it was. The sharing of the spirit and leadership it necessarily diminished Moses. Moses is no longer the only one you go to. There were others. There were others involved. And so Moses is no longer the only one. He's still at the apex, but he's diminished a little bit. There is a little bit of the judgment of God, the justice of God saying, Moses, this is what you asked for. And the battle is, it's, it's, I don't believe it's a coincidence at all that from this point on in the book of Numbers, Moses' leadership is going to be in question and it's going to be a big issue. In fact, chapter 12, when we get into that, that's the issue. It is a huge issue. We're going to see it come up again later on with Korah. We're going to see it come up later on with other individuals. They are going to battle with Moses' leadership. Why? Because now other people have the divine seal of approval. Moses, what says you're the only one? You know, God's obviously working through these people too. Why do we have to follow just you? Why is it just your word? Does God only speak to you, Moses. And so this this answer to Moses' prayer still has a little bit of judgment to Moses and saying, you're getting a little bit of what you asked for. Now, we recognize that uh, what was at stake here? Joshua urges Moses for immediate action. He's saying, Moses, you've got to stop these individuals because this is going to be a challenge to your leadership. Notice he says it down in verse uh, 28. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of the young men, answered and said, my Lord Moses, forbid them. Stop them from prophesying. This isn't about, this is about you, Moses. Your, cha- your leadership is being challenged. You're the one who we follow. Jo- Joshua is loyal to Moses and rightfully so. He is God's leader for the people. Mo- Joshua is loyal. And yet he's looking and saying, this is going to cause a problem. Moses, you got to stop them. And so Moses is going to have this great opportunity to remain in the state that he had been in. He could sit there and he could be self-focused. He could sit there and he could self, be self-preserving or show self-preservation. That, uh, you know what, I need to stop them because this is about my leadership, this is about me, this is not about them. He could look and say, it's all about me. He could remain in this self-centered wallowing that he's struggling with and going, oh no, these individuals, they're going to go against me and they're going to rise up against me and there's going to be a coup and I'm going to be in trouble. Moses has a really great ability to remain in the complaining, grumbling state, the concern, the self-pity that he had been in. But Moses, in great wisdom, he's back. Wise Moses, the one we love, the one that most of us know and we're really shocked when we get into seeing where Moses had gone in chapter 11. Wise Moses is back. He's going to respond with great spiritual maturity. Verse number 29, look what he says. Moses is going to say to him, envious thou for my sake? In other words, Joshua, are you jealous for me, for my leadership? You want me to have... This, I, 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 you know, he's looking and saying, don't, don't be envying for mine. He's going to focus not on his own status, not on his own situation. He's not going to look and say, this is about me. Moses is back. Mo, he's going to say, I'm, don't worry about my reputation, Joshua. Even if God becomes or bypasses my leadership altogether and gives all the people gifts of leadership, he's saying that would be a wonderful thing. He's got this perspective down. Look, Look at the rest of the verse. He says, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses looks and says, Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if God would permanently put his spirit upon people to do ministry for him? What a radical thought. He's like, Wouldn't that be awesome? I would, I would have to wonder what Moses would think about if he walked into churches and he looked and he goes, whoa, whoa, wait a second. The Spirit of God is upon all of these believers? It's not just one or two? You are all able to do the work of the ministry? He's like, wow, I would imagine Moses would probably look and go, wow, you guys must be turning the world upside down for Christ. And yet we look and we have a unique opportunity You fast forward from Moses' wishes to our present day. Believers, we have the spirit of God upon us. Why? Because God has indwelt us and God wants us to minister for him and God wants us to be serving him and God wants us to be loyal to him and God wants us to be sharing his word. We have the spirit that Moses wished that every Israelite would have had. And we get that at salvation. And yet we grieve the Spirit. We don't yield to the Spirit. We complain about what the Spirit is doing. And we live for ourselves. We exalt ourselves against the God who has so graciously given us more than we could ever ask or think. But Moses looks and says, Joshua, this is not a bad thing. If there are other people that God is using to minister to people, let it happen let it happen. And Moses is so wise in this situation. He focuses not on a status and situation, but rather he focuses on the blessing that God was bringing. Moses focuses on what God was doing, not what Moses wanted done. He looks and says, this is what God is doing and I'm going to trust in it and we're going to go with it. This is what God is doing in our world. It's not what I want done, but I've got to trust in it. And I've got to go with it because God is in control and not art. I've got to follow it. I've got to yield to the Spirit and work in this world. I've got to minister in this world that I live in. I want to look at the blessings that God has brought to me, not complain about all the situations, not complain about all the different hardships and heartaches, but rather, what are some of the blessings that have come through my situation, through my current, our current world situation? We need to look at the blessings, and we need to minister because we have the Spirit upon us We need to be ministering and looking and saying, what is God doing? And I'm going to get on board and let's go forward with it. Wise words from Moses. Wise servants of the Lord, I think is a really great principle from this passage. Wise servants of the Lord are not jealous of the gifts of the spirit that have been given to fellow believers. You have different gifts than I do. And I have different gifts than you do. And Pastor John has different gifts than I do. And Pastor Tony has different gifts than I do. And Pastor Wayne has different gifts than I do. And I can't be jealous of any of them or any of you because of what gifts God has given to you. Why? Because I should be excited. I should be joyful if you are using your gifts that God has given to you. Why does he give the gifts? According to 1 Corinthians, according to Ephesians, it's for local church ministry. It's for the body of believers. And if you are using your gifts, if they are using their gifts to minister for the Lord and for his glory, then I should not be jealous that they might be better at something than I am, that they might have a greater ability in an area than I do. I ought to be rejoicing and saying, look at God using them. Look at them using their gifts that God has granted to them for your betterment, for your strength, that you are using your, your gifts to build up one another. We don't be jealous, but rather we look and say, okay, this is what God is doing. And I'm going to be excited about that. Thomas Craddock, he was a, he was a minister in Wales uh, back in the, the 19, early 1900s. And in, while he was ministering there, he was away from his church for a while. And while he was away in their small church, their church experienced a great revival. 800 people came to Christ in a matter of weeks, and yet their pastor was away. So how's he going to respond? How would I respond? If all of a sudden I leave and everything goes, goes great and just the church you know, quadruples in size, it actually more than next. I think they had like 80 people, they said, and then went to 800. How would I respond if I was the pastor? Well, I guess it's my fault. I need to stay away. Look at what Craddock says. Craddock wrote in his journal, he says, we should all rejoice that the Lord has manifested his spirit and is moving amongst his people. It does not matter that I was not there. It only matters that the Lord would be glorified. That's the heart of Moses. That's what Moses said he needed to get back to. That God is in control and what God chooses to do, he's going to do, but he's going to get on board. He's going to be excited and he's not going to be jealous. That ought to be our heart. When you find that someone else led somebody to Christ, you don't get bitter and say, when's God going to let me lead someone to Christ? You rejoice with them. We rejoice when God does something great and not be jealous. We can't have a spirit of jealousy when it comes to other people's abilities and gifts and their ministering for the Lord. Moses makes a conscious decision in this passage to humbly depend on the word of the Lord. What does he do? He obeys it, verse 24. He he humbly obeys the word of the Lord. How does he show humility? He says, I'm going to obey God's word. Because what he's saying is, what God is saying, I'm willing to follow because it's God's word. Because he is the one who said it. So Moses humbly obeys the word of the Lord. He shows that he is humble by trusting that God would work all of this out. When he gets down to verse 29, he's like, God's the one doing this, Joshua. He is in control. And what God is doing, I am confident it is for our good. We, we need a little bit of humility. When we look at Moses, Moses was proud. He was self-centered. He was struggling, and it was causing, causing struggle and battle in his life. And God looks and says, I haven't asked you to provide the meat. I'm the one who's going. And you think my arm is short, my hand is short. I have the strength. And Moses had to take a step back and say, wait, This is what the word of the Lord says. I'm going to obey the word of the Lord and I'm going to trust that what God says and what God does is for our best. And Moses takes that attitude of humility and says, this is what I need to have in my life. In fact, we're going to see in the next chapter that we're going to learn a little bit about Moses that it says he was the meekest of any individual who ever walked the earth. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 12. But it's really interesting to note the dynamic of Moses and his attitude that was, that was changing here. But we talk about this idea. It's, okay, he trusts and obey. And we hear it. And you know the gospel, the old gospel song has it right. That's where we find joy. It's where we find peace and happiness and contentment by trusting and obeying in God. But why do we, tr- we always say, you need to trust and obey. You need to-. But why do we do it? Why do we trust and obey? Because when we trust and obey, it demonstrates our humility. I am not in control. And if I am not in control, that means that somebody else is. And why do I trust and obey? It demonstrates my humility. It recognizes my authority. Not my personal authority, but rather it humbly submits my personal authority to the one who truly is in authority. It recognizes that God is in control. So when I trust and obey, God, I'm not in control. You are in control. What does it do? It showcases my submission. In other words, it's saying, I'm going to place my will under his control. Why do I trust and obey? Why should you trust and obey? Because when we do, when we humbly submit to God's will, God's words, God's ways, It shows that I am not in control, that God is in control, and I am willing to take my will and submit it to his. That when my will is going contrary to God's will, I need to change my will and I need to place it under God's will. And that's where Moses was at. Moses is looking and saying, I can't do this. I don't want to do it anymore. And God is saying, this is what I have for you, Moses. This is who you are. You are my leader and I'm going to use you and I'm going to provide for these people and I'm going to give you helpers. Are you going to humbly submit and humbly depend on my words and my ways? And Moses does so. He relinquishes his control and gives his control to God. He submits to him and he allows God's will to take place and recognizing that God is in control. Doesn't it remind you of 1 Peter? The whole passage when I'm reading through this Numbers 11, I'm thinking First Peter. Because the people did not cast their cares upon God. They were looking at their own circumstances and, and casting it upon themselves and trying to figure it all themselves. But what does Peter say? Therefore, humble yourselves under the what? The mighty hand, the one that's not cut short. He says, casting, or, place yourself under that mighty, the strong hand of God, that he may do what? That he may exalt you when the time's right. Casting all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's our God. That is our God that we trust. That is our God that we should be obeying. Our God that we are humbly depending on in the midst of life, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of the good, in the midst of the bad. We cast our cares. We we humbly submit to him knowing that he is in control. I am not and I need to submit to his will. Is it time for an exchange? Is it a time for an exchange to take my grumble and replace it with a little bit of humble? To get my eyes off myself and my circumstances and thinking that I have to fix everything and that I am in control and that I and our our people and our government and our politics and all the that they're the ones who are going to solve everything and fix it. And rather look and say, it's time for me to humble myself. Under the mighty hand of God. And we're going to let him take care of it. We're going to cast all of our cares. And we've got a lot of them right now. There's a lot going on. Yet, I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to cast my cares upon him because I know that he is good. And I know that he has my best interest at heart because he cares for me. God, I pray that you would help us To eat a little humble pie. Help me to not exalt myself against you. Lord, help others to not exalt our ways against you, but rather to submit our will to you because we are not in control, but you are. Thank you for your direction. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your protection and your provisions in our life. Lord, help us to see the blessings that you have given and not focus on the burdens of this life. Thank you for being God. We love you. Help us to submit to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much.